Are there really such things as curses guarding ancient Egyptian tombs and the mummies and burial goods which were interred therein? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. Tales of deadly curses have long haunted the minds of those who gaze today upon the mummified remains of ancient Egyptians and artifacts looted from their tombs, and there may well be reason for their concern. While it is a matter of dispute as to whether there actually was the inscription of a curse found in the tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun, and even more contention over the cause of the deaths of Lord Carnarvon, who funded the tomb's discovery, and five others present at the opening of the tomb, it does seem that the builders of ancient Egyptian tombs did sometimes attempt to protect the tombs and their occupants from ever-present grave robbers with curses such as these. As for anybody who shall enter this tomb in his impurity, I shall wring his neck as a bird's. And another, which read, As for any man who shall destroy these, it is the God thought who shall destroy him. And yet another, which threatened, As for him who shall destroy this inscription, he shall not reach his home. He shall not embrace his children. He shall not see success. And perhaps no case of a cursed Egyptian artifact has captured the public's imagination as much as the story of artifact EA-22542, which, should you dare to do so, you may view for yourself in Room 62 of the British Museum. The story concerning this artifact is as controversial as it is fascinating. Officials at the British Museum will tell you that the entire story is pure bunk. However, we have accounts written by those who claim to have heard first-hand parts of the story from the chief actors involved in the drama. The version of the story I'm about to share was pieced together from those accounts. Is the story entirely true? Or are parts of it true? Or is it all pure bunk? I leave it to you to decide. According to the famed London palm reader, astrologer, and occultist Cairo, it all started one afternoon in the 1880s when a gentleman named Thomas Douglas Murray visited Cairo's consulting rooms, requesting a reading. He was, Cairo would later record, like so many other rich young men who went about killing time as pleasantly as possible till they, in the natural course of events, would themselves be killed by it. 
Cairo reached out for his client's right hand, but no sooner had he grasped hold of it than he experienced a shudder of horror. He immediately let go of the hand and without thinking cried out, I feel this hand of yours will not be yours for long. A picture forms in my mind of a gun of some kind bursting and shattering it to pieces. This is followed by terrible suffering until finally the entire arm will have to be amputated. Your hand seems to be calling out to me to try to save it from this impending disaster. Your hand shows me another picture. It draws a number out of a lottery. The number gives you a prize you do not want to have, but out of obstinacy and fatalism, you take it. And from that moment out commences a series of misfortunes, beginning with the loss of your right arm and ending with your death. Then Cairo saw the image of a carved Egyptian mummy case covered with hieroglyphics. Don't touch it. I beg of you, don't touch it. If you do, it will bring misfortune to you and to all others who have anything to do with it. Murray laughed at what seemed a preposterous prophecy and went on his way undaunted by Cairo's warning. A few years later, Cairo recounted, Thomas Douglas Murray was to return to his consulting rooms, sorrow writ large across his face, an empty right arm coat sleeve pinned neatly across his chest. It all happened exactly as you foresaw, Murray began. On a whim, I had gone to Egypt with two friends to do some shooting on the Nile. While there, I purchased a number of scarabs and other antiquities and was shown the cover of a mummy case said to be that of a high priestess of the Temple of Amun-Ra. It was exquisitely carved and decorated the priestess's face and hands covered in gold leaf. Although I remembered what you had said, and something deep within me screamed out that I should not do so much as to even touch the cursed thing, I couldn't resist the temptation to buy it. When it arrived that night at my hotel room, as my friends appeared to be a bit jealous of my find, and as I was beginning to have misgivings, I suggested that we should draw lots to determine who should own it. I drew the winning number. But then, as one of us suggested that as there were three of us, we should draw lots three times, whoever it was who won the most times being awarded the prize. I drew the winning number each of the three times. I arranged to have the artifacts I had collected packed up and sent back to London, and a few days later, we were shooting far up the Nile when my gun exploded in my hand. The pain was unbearable, and we immediately turned our boat round and set off in search of proper medical attention. However, a freakishly strong headwind blew up, delaying our return by ten days. By then, gangrene had set in, and despite the doctor's best efforts, after weeks of agony, he had to amputate it. 
at the elbow. But this was to be only the beginning of my troubles. When I returned home, I found the two trunks filled with ancient curiosities I had collected in Egypt had been stolen. But waiting ominously in my hallway was the mummy case, which my household staff had seemed fit to unpack. You may not believe me, but when I looked upon the carved golden face of the priestess, her eyes seemed to come to life, and I saw such a look of hatred in those eyes that my very blood seemed to turn to ice. The next day, a writer came to interview me. When I told her my story, she laughed, declaring that she was not afraid of the dead, ancient or otherwise, and she asked if I might be willing to let her take the mummy case to her house. Murray was more than delighted to let her take the mummy case off his hands, but no sooner had the writer taken possession than her life turned into a nightmare. First, her mother fell down the staircase, breaking her thigh, and after months in severe pain, her mother died. Then, without giving any reason, her fiancé broke off their engagement. In the weeks which followed, each of her household pets, including three purebred dogs, went mad and had to be euthanized. At length, the writer herself became ill with a malady which her doctors could not explain, and she began wasting away to the point that she called her solicitor to her house so that she might execute a will. Convinced that the mummy case was to blame, the solicitor had it sent back to Murray, who immediately sent it on to the home of an Egyptologist friend. Although the writer recovered soon after the mummy case had left her house, one morning a few weeks later, the new owner, the Egyptologist, was found dead in his bed, an empty bottle of the sedative chloral hydrate by his side. His valet later testified that the man became plagued with insomnia from the night the mummy case had arrived. Whether all or part of Cairo's highly dramatic narrative, in which he paints himself as having predicted the calamity, is true, is open to question, as are reports that the mummy case was eventually sold to a collector who hired a man to photograph his new acquisition. The photographer is said to have died the next day. Another story holds that the well-respected photographic firm of Mansell's was next hired to do the job, but the new photographer and his assistant were said to have been injured in the course of performing the job, and when the photographic plate was developed, it is said that in place of the placid carved face of the priestess, there appeared the horrific image of a woman whose face seemed to be the embodiment of evil. Not long thereafter, this second photographer is said to have died, some suggest, at his own hand. What is clearly known to be true is that an elaborately painted inner mummy case cover depicting an unidentified woman of high status passed into the unlucky hands of one E.A. Wheeler, Esquire, 
Following his untimely death in 1889, his sister donated it in his name to the British Museum. It is said that one of the two porters who carried the mummy case into the museum fell in the process of doing so and broke his leg while the other porter died a week later. It is also beyond dispute that W.T. Steed, a writer well-known for collecting true ghost stories and an amateur Egyptologist with an amputated right arm by the name of Thomas Douglas Murray, reported to newspapers at the time that they had studied the mummy case cover. They felt that a spirit in torment had been trapped within the coffin, and they asked for permission to hold a seance at the museum through which they hoped to free the troubled spirit. Following Murray's death in 1911, his brother wrote the following. He went with a small party of friends to Egypt and arrived at Thebes, it was settled among the party that if any Arabs brought interesting curios for purchase, they would draw lots or toss up who should take them. The first object to be brought was the top part of a mummy coffin with the portrait of the occupant painted outside, a very desirable curio with, I believe, an inscription that anybody who disturbed the mummy would come to trouble. It was the portrait of a priestess of the god Amun-Ra, whose mummy had probably been inside when the Arabs took it. Almost immediately after it came into his possession, something happened with his gun, which in those days was a hammer gun. It probably slipped off his shoulder, with the result that the charge went from the muzzle of the gun quite close to his right arm, just below the shoulder. He would have bled to death on the sand, but he kept his head and showed a young man who was with him how to make a tourniquet. He was taken to Cairo and had the arm amputated, which quite put an end to his military career. Afterwards, the mummy case, which he would no longer keep, went to another member of the party, who kept it for a time, but later died from a gunshot wound. A third member of the party had it, and though well off at the time, everything seemed to go against him, and he died in poverty. His widow sent the mummy case to the British Museum, where it still remains, but there have been stories of several troubles which have occurred. No doubt these were all curious coincidences, he continued. Still, they are very mysterious and may possibly have some significance of which, in our present knowledge, we have not the solution. Whatever the full truth may have been, the mummy case rapidly became infamous, and although Sir Ernest Wallace Budge, the keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities at the British Museum, continually made public denials as to any supernatural events occurring in relationship to what quickly became known as the unlucky mummy. In private, he admitted to the mummy case having what he called an extremely lurid record. Sobbing and inexplicable hammering sounds were sometimes heard emanating from the mummy case during the day, 
and at night. A troubled spirit, which seemed to dwell within the case, was said to roam about the museum, breathing heavily down the necks of night watchmen. A museum doorkeeper described how one evening at dusk he saw a ghostly form rise up from beneath the coffin cover and glide silently towards him. Its wrinkled face was a ghastly yellow, reminding him of a sheep's bladder, and it seemed to glow with a terrifying yellowish-green luminescence. As the phantom flew toward him, he tried to push it away, but his hands met nothing but air, and the wraith threw him to the ground, dashing his head against a stone statue. A rumor quickly spread that anyone so foolish as to attempt to sketch the mysterious artifact would quickly meet with misfortune. A famous artist was said to have attempted on four occasions to prove the rumor wrong, but on each occasion his efforts were thwarted when he suffered a serious accident. After finally, on the fourth attempt, he succeeded in completing a drawing, he was run down by a horse and carriage as he left the museum. His drawing was destroyed beyond repair. At least 13 people were said to have died, and family fortunes were said to have been lost all as the result of interaction with the infamous mummy case. It is said that an extremely wealthy collector who briefly owned the mummy case suffered such financial losses that he was reduced to selling matches outside a London hotel in which he had, in better days, hosted lavish parties. Concerned Londoners sent checks to the museum requesting that flowers be purchased to assuage the priestess's troubled spirit. But the flowers were never delivered the unmoved museum directors choosing instead to deposit the checks into the museum's general fund. Kay Thomas, the daughter of a museum official who had worked for over 50 years at the museum, later wrote that her father had related many stories concerning the mummy case to her. Most of the cleaners were afraid of it, she later recalled and they often made a gesture of deferential submission when passing the case. Finally, the stories of its evil influence became so numerous that it was decided that the safest thing was to remove the case from display and store it in the museum's basement. When it came to the potentially hazardous job of moving the mummy case, Kay's father discreetly absented himself from the proceedings. This may have turned out to be a wise decision on his part, as one of the men chosen to assist the museum's chief messenger in the task sprained his ankle, and seven days later, the chief messenger fell over dead at his desk. Kay Thomas contended that while her father was not in any way an imaginative type, he was completely convinced of the mummy case's diabolical powers and did his best to avoid it whenever possible. It was rumored that the mummy case was once offered as a gift to Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, who shrewdly declined the gift. It was also rumored 
that the mummy case was sold and shipped to a museum in the United States aboard the Titanic. After being found floating among the Titanic's grim debris, it was said to have been shipped back to England on the equally ill-fated Empress of Ireland. But neither of these two supposed events actually occurred. Eventually, the mummy case was returned from the museum basement to the Egyptian room, where it was placed back on display. And now, having more recently been moved to room 62, is still the subject of both fear and controversy. Perhaps the last word should go to Sir Ernest Wallace Budge, who was the first person to translate the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and who, it is said, believed in the power of ancient Egyptian magic. While publicly denying the stories surrounding the mummy case cover, it has been reported that privately he expressed the belief that the grave robber who had discovered the mummy which had peacefully lain within that case for 3,000 years fell dead at her feet the moment he touched her outer wrappings. Speaking of the First World War, Sir Ernest is recorded as having said, Never print what I say in my lifetime, but that mummy case caused the war. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.